And welcome. You're listening to The Green Majority here at CIUT 89.5 FM. I am live in the studio today, actually, with Rob Shirky from Our Horizon. Thank you for sitting in studio today, Rob. Thank you for having me here, Darren. Uh, We're actually going to be getting back uh, to talk largely with Rob a little bit in the middle of the program. In just a minute, actually, we're also going to have uh, Professor Dan Bedford, who's with the Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Weber State University. Uh, We're going to be talking a little bit about inoculating against climate denial. Uh, but while we're just getting him on the phone, actually, I thought that the, this is also going to be a bit of a theme, uh, Rob, when we, when we dig into some news about our horizon uh, mm-hmm. later, because you've also been uh, traveling uh, all over Canada and the U.S., um, advocating for labels on gas pumps. If uh, Rob's been on the show a couple times, but uh, in case you hadn't heard either of his uh, previous mm-hmm. uh, visits uh, as well. Uh, and I think some of the thing that we said we're going we're gonna to talk about a little bit is just is, is very similar is some yeah. of the responses people have to to attempts to to solve these problems. It's interesting because here I am trying to make us feel a little bit more connected to this problem. Uh, and I think that's sort of a big piece of the puzzle. But we'll get into that later for sure. Yeah. All right. So I believe we now have uh, uh, Professor Bedford on the phone. Are you there, Dan? Uh, sorry, Dan, are you there? Yes. Hello. Oh, hello there we are. Sorry. A very, a very brief technical, uh, a very brief technical error. Thank you so much for joining us today on The Green Majority. Sure. Thanks for having me. Uh, we wanted to speak to you about uh, this idea of inoculating uh, against climate uh, denial. Uh, you've been working uh, quite a bit, I understand, with John Cook, also as well from the University of Queensland. And the article that really tipped us off to talk about this was uh, the article that uh, John uh, put on the Desmog blog, which is uh, an excellent resource, if I haven't said that often on the show already. Um, but the overarching theme here, I guess, is a way by way of introduction, is that uh, uh, you know, the, the common uh, reaction, the common practice of, of people being misinformed about things is generally to try and correct them with, with more information. Uh, you know, and so when we're talking about things like climate change, uh, the reaction many people have had to to uh, deny it or or say, well, yes, maybe it's concerned, but it's not that big a deal. And, and all of the different shades of gray, if you will, of anything short of what the evidence and science actually seems to imply uh, is to simply provide them with more information. Uh, and a lot of the work that you've been working on is that this actually doesn't appear to be the case. Uh, would you please just explain this concept? Sure, yeah. Uh, well, there's actually quite a large body of, of research, uh, particularly from psychology, that indicates that, that if you just keep on giving people more information, they, they really don't like to deal with it, especially if it's, if it's coming uh, against their uh, already well-held uh, preconceptions. Um, so what's helpful uh, we're working on this. We're, we're, the, we're building the, the empirical evidence. There's, there is some out there, but uh, we're, we're hoping to gather more. But it, it seems as though uh, when you take on some of these mistaken preconceptions, these misconceptions that people have, particularly about climate change, if you address them directly and demonstrate how the, the misinformation can distort the real science, then that can be a more effective uh, communication tool. And it it can also, I think more importantly, it can help to ward off uh, future advances from uh, additional misinformation. Um, So my my kind of context is, you know, I'm I'm teaching undergraduate students here at my university. And I can't teach them everything. I can't point out every single myth that there is about climate change. But what I can do is demonstrate to them how the myths work and, and what's the sort of common 
tactics that get used in this information, how the myths typically tend to distort the science. Uh, and, and that, I think, can, can help um, guard against these future uh, kind of exposures to misinformation. And so that's the that's the first, I think, really interesting portion there, which is that uh, in many cases, not all, of course, but in many cases, the the science or, or climate denial rather doesn't take the form of, you know, scientists say climate change is real and people just say, no, it isn't. It's that they're hearing things that look like science or look like credible science. And so they're sort of choosing the science that they prefer. Is that is that close or is that right. misunderstanding? Yeah, that's 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 close. Um Often what they're doing is they are, they're not necessarily choosing the, the studies that they like. They're choosing the bits of the studies that they like and, and misrepresenting them. So uh, one of my favorite examples of that is um, in uh, Al Gore's movie, An Inconvenient Truth, he talked about the relationship uh, that's dem- demonstrable in the ice cores that show that uh, when it's cold, carbon dioxide levels are low. When it's warm, carbon dioxide levels are high. And he he inevitably he missed out some some important details he did actually sort of gloss it over by saying the the reality of this relationship is actually very complicated and then he moved on he didn't explain what the complications were the complications are that it's not the carbon dioxide that kicks off the temperature change in the ice core record that's that's being driven by wobbles in the Earth's orbit, these things called Milankovitch cycles. So what happens first in the ice core record is you see a slight temperature change that's then followed by a carbon dioxide change. Uh, And that's been well documented in the science. So what the misinformation version of that does is focuses on that and says, look, temperature goes up before carbon dioxide goes up. Thus, it's temperature causing CO2 to change, not CO2 causing temperature to change. So when you know the full background to that research and you look at the studies in their entirety, not just the cherry-picked bits, it all actually makes sense that what's happening is you get these wobbles in the Earth's orbit that trigger an initial temperature change, but that temperature change wouldn't be anything like the scale of what we've actually seen in the paleoclimate record were it not for the amplifying effects of carbon dioxide. So carbon dioxide is still a very important piece of the puzzle. It's just not the first thing that changes. So it, you can take those those little bits uh, out of context and say, aha, look, this shows that carbon dioxide can't be a greenhouse gas. Carbon dioxide doesn't contribute to climate change, which, of course, is not the case. Mm. There, there's a quote that uh, I'm, I'm forgetting who to, who to attribute it to, but it was in reference actually to uh, uh, quantum mechanics. And it was uh, somebody saying that if you think you understand quantum mechanics, you don't almost by definition. <laughs> Um, and I think this is another for me, this is another one of those areas where, you know, you get it. You see a lot of people on, on social media and, and whether or not they're just legitimately misinformed people or, you know, sometimes uh, you'll see a lot of people accusing them of being, you know, paid, uh, paid trolls. There's no way to prove any of that. But I'm, I'm sure there are some of those out there for, for with, with certainty. There are some of those out there. Um, but to what to what extent do you think this is just a matter of the fact that it, it's just really complicated and it's and it's it's not so much that the climate change science or, or or that climate science is not is on shakier ground than other science. It's just that we're not used to the public having so much of a very complex scientific topic thrust upon them and asking asking them to understand it. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Actually, yes. Um, I, I think actually you can step back from the details and tell the story in actually a very simple way. Um, and the, the fundamentals are that climate change is real. You know, the Earth is getting warmer. Um, that it's being caused by human emissions of carbon dioxide, so it's real, it's us, um, it's potentially a very serious problem. Scientists agree overwhelmingly about these things, and there are plenty of things that we can do. There are 
all sorts of policy options that could be put in place. So at a very simple level, there's five things that happen to be true about climate change. It's real, it's us, um, scientists agree about it, it's potentially serious, and there are lots of things that we can do if we would just get on and do them. Um, and I think where the, um, the, the sort of denial industry or the misinformation industry has, has been very successful and very effective has been to start to focus on the, the fine details um, and, and cherry-pick pieces of the science which can then be made to look very convincing and spun very convincingly um, but they're very misleading so yeah once you start getting down into the weeds of the, the details of the technical discussions then you start to lose people fairly quickly I think uh, but at its basic level the, the climate change story is really quite straightforward I think that's one of the things that that sort of uh, I, I rarely express this to people when I'm talking about the topic, but it's something that I sort of I think about in the back of my head which is that you can you can take any book off any bookshelf and cherry pick a few sentences that seems to contradict the intent of the book like this is it's not it's not strange that you can find things that seem odd when taken out of context like sometimes people will send me things about oh well you know we've already proved that this is a conspiracy because of those emails and i'm like oh, come on come on if you, if you took any 10 any group of any ten thousand emails and tried to pull out three sentences i could guarantee you i could make anyone look terrible it's just nonsense. But anyway, um, <laughs> enough about that. What I'd like to get into is uh, um, some of the things here is uh, some practical examples uh, of what are the types of uh, some of the things that are uh, techniques that are being used to sort of confuse people. And how are you inoculating them against that? Right. Well, the, <clears throat> there are many different techniques. Um, we've talked about one already, which is to simply cherry pick the, the, the science. So misrepresent the science. Um, there's uh, another technique, which is to focus on studies that have, uh, have since been discredited. Um, so one, one of the ways that this misinformation campaign works uh, or, or is effective is uh, to play on the way people understand or don't understand the way science actually works, which is that um, you know, it's constantly reevaluating. We're constantly kind of putting uh, work out through the peer review process. It's being um, kicked and tested, and maybe it comes up uh, still standing after all the tests have been thrown at it. Maybe it doesn't. Uh, and if it doesn't, then we come up with new ideas. So one of the things that happens is that old studies that have um, since been uh, disproved many times over, they keep popping back up in the, in the conversation. So um, one example is work on um, the tropics where the idea is that, uh, that there was a theory of, uh, going around about uh, 10 or 15 years ago suggesting that, um, that the, the tropics were a place where heat could, <clears throat> could escape through the atmosphere, that there were certain processes that, that would kick off as a consequence of warming that would naturally work to damp the warming back down again. That would all happen in the tropics. But there have been many studies since that have shown that that's really not going to happen. Um, that's theoretically unlikely, and that the evidence suggests that that's not happening at the moment. So uh, this is not something that, that uh, holds much credence in the scientific community anymore. But in the books uh, that are being written uh, by people who work for the Heartland Institute and, and the Case Institute and so forth, um, those, uh, those studies keep popping back up. So the discredited studies, the, the, they were legitimate at the time, right? They were published in real peer-reviewed journals by real scientists. So this is, you know, at the time, perfectly legitimate stuff. But later work in the natural process of science has, has then disproved it. So pulling those ones back up, that's a, that's a standard technique. So cherry-picking the science, um, relying on old studies that have since been discredited, uh, those, are, those are common things. So um, some of the things that, uh, that I've been doing to inoculate students or to help, help students kind of identify when they're looking at real science versus, uh, versus questionable stuff um, is we actually look directly at the misinformation. Um, so 
uh, it's easy, uh, I've said to a number of people in the past, it's easy to get depressed when you see this kind of tide of misinformation um, rolling over us. Um, but from my perspective, I'm quite, in a sense, quite happy about it. I wouldn't want to take that too far, but what they're doing is providing me with great teaching materials <laughs> that we can work with. <clears throat> you know, because if I've done my job properly, if I've explained how the science works and the process of science and the fundamentals of climate science, then if I present my students with some of this misinformation and say, okay, what do you think? Then they should, without a prompting from me, they should be able to demonstrate why the arguments being made and that misinformation are wrong. Um, there was a marvelous paper in uh, Nature a few years ago, about 10 years ago, I think, that John Cook alerted me to. Uh, and there's a quote in there um, that it's as important for students to know why something is wrong. It's just as important for students to know that as it is for students to know why something is right. So you need to be able to demonstrate why something is wrong as well as be able to demonstrate why something is right. I, I, I've been advocating for a uh, critical thinking class in like grade two forever. Yeah. Uh, like just even basic logical fallacies. Like there's, right. there's, there's so many things that just seem incredibly, incredibly basic. Like you, something you bring up, like the uh, correlation doesn't equal causation. Like these are right. basic fundamental blocks of thinking. It has really nothing. It's, it has an application for, it, but isn't, it doesn't derive from, you know, climate science at all. These are right. just basic thinking tools. Sure. Uh, Kevin sure. Farmer actually wants to jump in and ask you something. Well, hi, professor. <clears throat> Excuse me, sorry for that. Uh, and actually, Darren just sort of preempted me. I was thinking that um, long before we get to uh, difficult concepts, uh, like some of the ones you're discussing, I was wondering just about the appropriateness of simply better education about the logical fallacies in, in, in the rules of debate and argument. Sorry, Kevin. Uh, yeah, no worries. It's, it's a good point because I personally, as someone who deals with this, I, I have in, in, in years now, I cannot remember a single argument uh, ever presented by any sort of climate denier that even before you got to the science wasn't some basic logical fallacy like a false dichotomy, the undistributed middle, uh, you know, just these basic rules that, that say no matter what you're saying, this argument doesn't get out of the gate because it's engaging a logical fallacy. And I'm just wondering if, if, if what, what your thoughts are on that. Oh, yeah. Well, there's a, a great example of that is the argument that, uh, well, climate's changed before. Um, sure, climate's always changed, right? So, well, yes, yes, it has. But that doesn't mean that it's not changing now because of human activities. So the one thing does not lead to the other, logically. I mean, it's a little bit like saying, um, I'm going to steal from uh, John Cook's Skeptical Science website, but uh, the argument that, that they suggest there is that's a little bit like saying, um, well, people have always contracted cancer, so obviously cigarette smoking doesn't cause cancer, right? Or... Um, there have always been fires. People have always, people's houses have always caught on fire. But that, that means arson never happens, right? So you, you're right. There's these sort of fundamental logical fallacies. And, and I think this is part of uh, what I try and do in the classroom with my students is to, to identify some of these logical fallacies. So it's, you're right. It's not just about the science. It's also about the sort of standard critical thinking. And realistically, you know, however much I might try and tell myself otherwise, most of my students, with the exception of the ones who are going to go on to graduate school, which is not many of them, but most of my students, they're not in five years, ten years from now, they're probably not going to remember the fine details of climate science. Um, but what I hope they'll remember is how to construct a logical argument. Right. And I, I got a wry chuckle when you mentioned the tide of disinformation, because my wry joke about dealing with climate deniers is that dealing with climate deniers is like trying to hold back the sea, which is really ironic. Um, and, and when you said, you know, I wonder sometimes because I pay maybe a little too much attention to this kind of news and this kind of discussion than would otherwise be healthy in a balanced life. And I'm wondering how much 
is out there. Like, it does seem like a tide some days if you wade into it. <laughs> Pardon the pun. Um, it, it just does seem like a tide of disinformation. And I'm wondering, is there really, is there really, as there appears to be, an army of shills, or sorry, uh, you know, uh, maybe a squadron of shills and an army of useful idiots parroting their, their lines? That's a great question. Um, I don't know. Uh, but what I hope and what I think is that the number of people who are actually perpetuating this misinformation is actually quite small. Um, certainly the number of people who are paid to do it is is really quite small. Uh, and sure, it gets amplified by websites and blogs and so forth. Um, and it seems like, boy, there's just this army of, of uh, misinformation, misinformance coming at us. Um, but I'm not so sure that's really the case. Uh, and certainly, I think w- when you look at surveys of public opinion, yeah, you find people who are out on the extremes, on, on both ends, actually, right? The, the people who are incredibly alarmed about climate change and the people who are totally dismissive of climate change, the, the two extreme ends. This is um, uh, referencing the um, Yale Project on Climate Communication, the, the Six Americas surveys that they've done. Um, but in the middle... And, yeah, some are shifting a little bit more towards the alarmed end and some are shifting a little bit more towards the dismissive end. But there's there's a big middle section there that, you know, realistically probably doesn't really care all that much one way or the other. You know, they've got lots of other things to do. Um, you know, we're all busy. We have lives. I have two small children. They take up a, a ton of time. Um, lots of people are in similar situations. They're working lots of jobs, tr- just trying to make ends meet. Um, how much time do they really have to devote to thinking about climate change? Not much, probably. Um, so it's it's the kind of large, not particularly convinced one way or the other middle section um, that I think that's where the the, uh, the the progress can be made, and that's that's where the communication efforts uh, can uh, can focus. Uh, Dan, I, we're actually up against the end of where we would normally cut this off, but this is one of my favorite topics. So I have one uh, quick comment and one final question for you. Sure. Uh, <laughs> uh, one of them was that, like, I, I, I know it's really bad too, and 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 I should resist the urge, but sometimes I can't. I just can't resist the urge to respond to people, you know, that send me, "Oh, haven't you read this new thing mm-hmm. for, that proves that climate change is a hoax?" Right. Uh, I can't resist engaging with them sometimes, and and the method that I found the most uh, reliable for me, and and I won't I won't pretend for a moment to think that I've changed anyone mind, but I at least get them to leave me alone with this, um, was that it was sort of following through some of these thoughts to their logical conclusion, uh, and then asking them if they'd considered what the logical conclusion of what they're actually suggesting is. Uh, and one of the most common ones that come up is people will say, well, this is, you know, well, you know, the, uh, this is this or that, and, you know, this is a hoax. And I say, okay, well, I can only think of two logical conclusions for this. Either you or the person that wrote this study is smarter and, and well-informed and has better research than the entire accumulation of the world's climate scientists, and you should probably be contacting them with this information instead of me, or you're proposing a one of the largest, most complicated, most uh, number of people involved conspiracies in the history of the planet, and how do you sleep at night? How are you just not constantly terrified about what a giant conspiracy this would be? Uh, and they tend to back off at that point, and so the final thing I usually leave them with, which is just my favorite, was... Um, even if they don't want to take action on it, the head of every uh, oil company has said climate change is real and man-made. All of them. They they have because they have to, whether they believe it or not. So what I like to ask them is, why would the oil companies participate in a conspiracy that is going to put them out of business? 
And I've never had anyone answer that question. And generally, they leave me alone at that point. So I just I, I, that wasn't even so much for you as that was just my my, my little personal <laughs> experience with this world. Uh, my final question for you, uh, Dan, and again, thank you so much for, for joining us. If you tuned in partway through, we're speaking to uh, uh, Professor Dan Bedford uh, from the uh, Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences at Weber State University about climate denial. And the, the last thing, I want to just give you an opportunity to talk about the course, um, because I have actually, in one of the other ways that I answer these questions when I get uh, stuff on social media about climate denial is I actually just send them to your website for the course. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been doing this for quite some time, so I hope I'm responsible for at least a few signups. Oh, good. Um, please, please just talk about the course and let people know how they can get involved uh, and, and, and what is actually involved in this massive open online course. Yeah. Well, the MOOC, the MOOC has it's been a very interesting thing. Um, I've actually kind of had relatively limited involvement with it. I've only actually done one lecture. Um, but the, the whole idea, I mean, I have to thank John Cook for uh, for jumping on this, but um, he tells me anyway that, that the idea for doing the MOOC came from a paper that I wrote in 2010 um, called Agnotology as a Teaching Tool, um, which is the, the whole idea of agnotology. Is it's the study of how and why we don't know things. Um, and it, that paper outlined um, the, the ways I use uh, Michael Crichton's book, State of Fear, <laughs> in one of my courses. And, and we you know, the, the idea is, okay, here's a whole bunch of misinformation, and can the students take it apart? So the, the thinking behind the MOOC was, let's let's take this idea of, of dealing with, with climate change misinformation um, and use that as the, the kind of central structure for the course. So it's not about simply providing information about climate change. It's about pr- providing information about climate change and countering the myths that exist about those particular ideas with regard to climate change. So there's, um, like, the, the, the lecture that I did is, is on the, the myth that... Uh, all the climate scientists in the 1970s were concerned about global cooling and the onset of a new ice age, right? which is it's a very prevalent myth. It's very popular. It's very common. Um, you hear it very frequently, uh, but it's not true. You know, when you look at the scientific literature, there's an excellent paper that's published uh, in 2008 uh, by Tom Peterson and co-workers that, that deals with this. They looked at the literature. They did a big study, and they said, oh, look, turns out that most of the papers being published that time were actually about global warming. So the idea behind the MOOC is we take... Um, we take the myths and we explain what the science is, then we look at the myth, then we look at how the, the myth distorts the science, which cognitive psychology suggests that's probably the most effective way to deal with misinformation, is you, pre- you present the information first, then the myth, then you show how the myth distorts the real information. Um, so it's, it's been interesting. You know, John is an amazing ringmaster. He's really good at rounding up a lot of people. Some very uh, accomplished scientists uh, have been doing lectures. Kevin Cowton, for example, uh, University of York, who's famous for uh, doing a, a new study of um, temperature data sets uh, for uh, global average temperature. Um, and he's got a John managed to get a whole bunch of interviews from prominent climate scientists like Richard Alley, uh, Catherine Hayhoe. So some really fabulous stuff uh, in there. Probably the best way to sign up for it would be to go to the skepticalscience.com website um, and search for the Denial 101X. Uh, materials. There's um, uh, ads posted all over skepticalscience.com for, for Denial 101X. Um, but I think it's, uh, it's a marvelous experience. A lot of great instructors, um, a lot of great scientists involved in, in doing the project. All right. Well, again, thank you so much for your time, uh, Professor Bedford. Sure. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. And we will have links to the, uh, the DSMOG blog article and the course if you have any questions about that or you'd like to sign up or maybe you know a few people that you'd like to refer to sign up to that. Uh, please do. That will be available on the show post at greenmajority.ca later today. Uh, we're going to go to our first music break here and we'll be back in a few minutes to uh, talk to Rob, who's been sitting here patiently uh, all show all morning. We'll be right back. You're listening to The Green Majority.
All right. And we are back. We're going to be talking to uh, Rob Shirky from Our Horizon in just a moment. But I believe Edward is going to tell us what the music track was in a minute. Uh, we've been trying to get into a good habit about doing this because uh, listeners actually, you know, uh, I'd say about 5% of our mail is uh, people complaining that we don't tell them what the songs are. So, Edward, it's would nice you please... We're getting through. Yes. Yes. People are listening and letting us know that we're <laughs> doing things wrong, <laughs> which we appreciate, by the way. That's no sarcasm at all. Please comments, uh, comments, questions or criticism is all well welcome at greenmajority.ca slash contact us edward what was that song hi that was uh you you could um <laughs> host mike <laughs> hello there you go uh that was you could have been a lady tonight by april wine <laughs> all right thank you so much edward and we'll be doing that back again in just a couple of minutes uh without further ado though rob shirky is in the studio uh rob you have been all over canada and the u.s recently we're going to talk about some of the results of that uh for a minute and, and some of the conversations you've been having you've been getting some really good press uh making it into the to several newspapers uh, i want to congratulate you on that but let, let's just first of all update people on uh, a in case they haven't heard your other visits uh if you just again summarize what our horizon x is actually doing uh, and then just talk about all the all the stuff you've been doing, please. So the concept, uh, the thing I'm advocating for is really, really a, a simple climate intervention. Um, the thinking is for a lot of us, it's an issue. It's sort of amorphous. It's far away. We don't really deal with it or think about it day to day. That's part of the, why maybe it's it's a challenging one to address. So I'm trying to make it a little more real, a little more tangible, more proximate by actually putting a, a climate change label, call it a warning label, information label, consumer notice, right on the pump. So if you gas up right now at a gasoline station, oftentimes uh, there's like an advertisement on the gas pump, sort of the three inch by three inch square. And I'm suggesting, imagine if uh, on that place instead, we had a label uh, using some image and text that showed us the impacts of our fossil fuel use. So spoke to perhaps ocean acidification, extinction of species, a drought and famine, or more localized aspects like just air pollution. So I'm advocating for that at the municipal level, and we're starting to get legislative traction across North America. Awesome. And uh, so you've been uh, doing a whole bunch of trips. I understand you were down in California recently. Yes, I was in California. I actually knocked on a billionaire's door. Wow. I trespassed onto private property and I did not land in jail. So w would you let us know who it was? Um, I feel bad. Or should you not? Yeah, maybe. Okay. I, I probably well. shouldn't. Um, <laughs> but the hope was, you know, of course, if, if you're in this business, you're trying to scrounge for funding. So uh, so that's what I was going for. So fingers crossed, maybe one day a billionaire will be like, yeah, why not? So Monty Burns didn't release the hounds. <laughs> he did not release the hounds. Okay, that's yes. good to know. So let's talk a little bit about, because uh, uh, again, you've been on before, so if people want sort of the longer version, well, the last time we had you on uh, was actually uh, was a video interview, and we and that mm -hmm. one we, we really did sort of the long version of, of your story, and, and there's a number of other videos. I've actually helped you with a couple of other videos mm -hmm. as well. Thank you, by the way. Um, you're welcome. So if people sort of want the, the full story, um, actually there's a video that was being produced from a talk you did a couple mm -hmm. days ago that was really just it's the full pitch and it's mm -hmm. it's an excellent resource uh goes through a lot of data you have a lot of slides very mm -hmm. visual i think really laying out not just the argument for uh you know why this is necessary which is the climate change but also here's how what my idea will affect so if people mm -hmm. really want to dig into that and learn more about that those resources are available on your website mm -hmm. um what i'd like to talk to you more about and i think more the reason i, I wanted to have you on today was to talk about some of the conversations you've been having because we uh, uh for people that aren't sort of aware um 
Uh, Stefan, myself, and Kevin all uh, work and volunteer with the Center for Social Innovation. Mm -hmm. Uh, You do as well. You also work there. Our Horizon office is at the Center for Social Innovation. And so we just bump into each other Mm -hmm. all the time and and have these great little conversations. And and a lot of the time you'll sort of, well, you know, I had this funny conversation or that funny conversation in passing. And I just sort of wanted to give you an opportunity. Obviously, we're not going to say anybody's name or anything, but just to sort of talk about some of the conversations, some of the good conversations you have, and and, uh, also some of the the criticism or some Mm -hmm. of the questions people have for you. Well, it's funny. I think uh, a lot of people do get the idea. Uh, and those that don't, I almost want to say those that get it tend to be more systems thinkers. Mm. Those that don't tend to be more linear in thinking. And so one of the common things is, well, there I am at the pump. Uh, here's this consumer advisory s- saying that there's some harms to the use of this product. What do I do? What am I supposed to do? I can't abandon my vehicle. And so a systems thinker might actually say, oh, so if that's your experience at the pump, the end users is now... S- uh, previously this this innocuous act it's habitual it's automatic we just gas up we don't even think about it you're taking that experience then denormalizing it making the end user say well, well what are my options what am i supposed to do if i say that if my neighbor's saying that if everyone that's gassing up using this fossil fuel begins to ask those sorts of questions you're then creating this social environment where there's so much more room for reform because you've denormalized the status quo you've challenged it you're now giving a politician more political freedom to perhaps it's fund public transit. Uh, you're actually incentivizing industry to deliver alternate solutions because if you can create a bit of dissatisfaction with the status quo solution, you're stimulating broader market demand for alternatives. That's a signal to industry for opportunities uh, for economies of scale. Perhaps you might see automakers roll out with alternate solutions. So a systems thinker sees how this changes the conversation. And I tend to think, I mean, it's funny. So we were on the National Post uh, front page, actually, which is great. And then I made the mistake of going to the Facebook and reading the comments. <laughs> and some, some of the comments, I'm like, oh, I think I'm going to go home, curl up in a ball and cry. <laughs> other comments, though. Don't uh, let them get to you, Rob. Don't let them get to you. They're all you. jerks. Um, other comments, though, were helpful. And so one of the things that I get is a lot of people will say, but we can't have these labels now because first what we need is uh, more electric vehicles at a better price point. We then need uh, we need better cycling infrastructure. We need better public transit and so on. Then you can have these labels because then that's uh, options that people can transition to. And I think it's based on this idea, you know, if you build it, they will come, right? Mm. I'm thinking, hey, it's 2015. Like, where <laughs> is it, right? Yeah. Uh, I tend to think it's actually if you make them want it, then you get to build it, then they will come. And so it's not, uh, you know, for a lack of alternatives that we can't have these labels. It's actually precisely because there are so few alternatives right now that we do need these labels. So we need to stimulate broader demand for this. Uh, it's, It's great because Professor Bedford actually said you know, engaging, the importance of engaging uh, the large middle section, right? So people like us, maybe a a lot of the the listeners to the program, we're doing what we can on this issue. Um, But imagine if you could engage this broad group of people that really aren't engaged in this issue, make it real, make it tangible, proximate, make them actually hold on to this thing. Uh, I think that's then a way of, of, again, creating this space where politicians might be hearing from people that they've never heard from before saying, well, what are my options? Public transit is terrible. Let's fund this. Not from the same old narrow group uh, that they typically hear from. So it's this easy, low-cost way of, of creating this shift then that I think enables so much more. Um, so that's some of the comments I hear. Uh, the other classic one is, you know, uh, 
why don't you spend your time lobbying government and and <laughs> lobbying um, you know businesses to change? And I'm thinking, well, that's great. I'm one person. This is a really leveraged approach to it because if you can engage other people in this that aren't engaged in it right now you then get a lot more people approaching. And I think we've actually had this conversation before at the Center for Social Innovation where uh, politicians in business, they often follow. They don't actually lead. So if you can create that critical social mass that's wanting something else, you're then giving opportunity uh, for change to then follow. Yeah. And one of the other um, sort of things I, I found with that was that, um, uh, for instance, so I, I, again, who said it was irrelevant, but there was somebody said something about uh, you actually weren't there, but I was hearing your idea being discussed. Mm. Uh, and somebody uh, surprised me because um, I consider them and I'm sure they are in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, super progressive and, and, you know, on board with climate change or no, they're not a diner or anything like mm-hmm, that. Mm-hmm. But they had what I found to be an incredibly telling uh, objection, mm. which was, um, you know, my uh, little old aunt or whatever mm-hmm. um, is already, you know, she's very environmental and she's very concerned about these issues. Um, but, you know, she already does everything she can. Mm-hmm. Very similar argument. So, you know, having these labels on the gas pumps is just going to make her feel sad mm-hmm. because she's already trying really hard. Mm-hmm. And I found it really revealing because, you know, regardless of what people's intentions or beliefs are around these issues, at the bottom line, I think everybody, and it has nothing to do with your political alignment, it has nothing to do with any of that stuff at all, it has nothing to do with your understanding of science, is that, you know, in the same way that we say that in economics, in theory, um, that price is arrived at by a balance between supply and demand, mm-hmm. um, is that the thing that's being balanced here is is not optimal um, society or, or any of these lofty goals. It's personal convenience and comfort mm-hmm. is what people seek. And, you know, I'd love to do that, um, but I'll feel inconvenienced by that, uh, even though that I know it's the right thing. And that that and that many people do legitimately think that that's a good enough reason to not do something. Uh, mm-hmm. And I found that I was floored by that comment. I really, really was. Kevin, you wanted to jump in. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, my favorite. I've saved a couple of memes from social media, <laughs> not the comments. I never saved the comments. That would have been like Dante's 10th circle of hell <laughs> if the Internet comments had been around in the 14th yeah, YouTube, century. YouTube comments and Facebook. Oh, comments. Lord. Yeah. But I've seen a couple of good memes. And one that always gives me a chuckle is there's a person addressing a crowd exhorting who wants change and every hand in the audience goes up and the next the next uh uh line is who wants to change and there's no hands going (laughs) and and i always get a wry chuckle about the fact that in our evolutionary history we've been close to extinction a few times actually the closest we ever came uh to extinction as a species was due to climate change uh, Hmm. in the in the geologic record um, but but we like to we like to pride ourselves, even if you don't believe in evolutionary theory. We like to we like to pride ourselves in our adaptability until someone asks us to change our behavior, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then suddenly we're just not adaptable at all. And uh, yeah, I, I just I, I, I just I just find that I just find that all very very interesting. That uh, but then you know on on my more charitable days, I think you know look, uh, no one can keep up anymore, or fewer and fewer people mm-hmm. can keep up can keep up with greater and greater demands in society. We're working longer hours for crappier jobs. We have, we have less time, less resources, less patience, and less hope for the future to engage in change and, and the political process. And our, the system that we can't keep up with is a system that's predicated on destroying resources and producing garbage. Like, it's predicated on that. And then, uh, then along come these environmentalists saying, but wait, wait, on top of all the other problems, deal with the garbage. We want you to deal with the garbage. <laughs> it's like, we, we can't. We can't even deal with with the demands that are being placed on us. And those demands are part of a system that can only function if we produce garbage. 
stop messing with me. <laughs> so I just think I think it's a very a very important discussion. I think I think Rob's got a a great idea about how to how to the word I like the word you use was denormalize this mm-hmm. act. And, and encourage people to have alternative thinking. You know, and that's the thinking. And this is maybe, I think, the best story that illustrates the power of this intervention. So it was a little over a year ago now that I was visiting my mother. So I live on the south end of town. She lives on the north end, visiting her for breakfast on the Monday, on the Tuesday, on the Wednesday, trying to catch her on a morning when her fuel gauge is close to empty. Finally, that happens. And I say, hey, how about we hang out again uh, later tonight? I'll come over for dinner. My poor mother, of course, thinks, oh, my wonderful boy is spending more time with me and so on. Really, I'm running an experiment on my mother. Um, and so so I show up that evening. It's already um, past Mother's Day. It's okay. a bad <laughs> so it's, it's allowed. Got a lot of time to recover for this now. Um, so, uh, so I show up in the evening, and before I go in, I, I check her fuel gauge. I see the needle go up to full. So I know that she gassed up during the course of her day. And I say, how was your day? Where all did you go today? And she says, oh, it was great. You know, I went to work. I got groceries. I came home. Where else did you go? Did you go anywhere else? Same story, right? By chance, did you get out of your car even for a moment? Think about your day. Questions get narrower and narrower. She keeps on saying, no, I mean, I went to to work. I got groceries. I came home. Eventually ask her, by chance, did you stop at a gas station? She pauses, she reflects, and she says, yeah, why? And so the thinking is, as you put it, Kevin, I'm trying to denormalize the status quo because this activity, it's so automatic, so habitual, uh, it's just part of the everyday fabric of living. And so I'm not here to make anyone's grandmother sad. I don't want people to feel guilty, say. But what you do need to do if you want to transition to a more compelling alternative, part of it is disrupting, denormalizing the status quo because there's so much inertia to that. And so the thinking is if you can take this here to four automatic habitual act, denormalize it, just make me ask that question, well, but what are my options? What am I supposed to do? You're creating so much more space uh, for change. So really what this is aimed at is is creating not so much guilt, but just a little bit of dissatisfaction with the status quo. And then that's going to be critical uh, to facilitating the shift. Well, and I think that's the really big key part too, right, Rob? What you were saying about, you know, people coming to you. And I think, you know, some of these people who are frustrated with you and, mm. and, and suggested you you do certain things that aren't fortunate, um, we're really coming from that place of, you know, they were like, well, what do you want me to do about it? Mm-hmm. Well, what I want you to do is ask that question. Like yeah. that, you've already proved my point. The exactly. point of this was not to get you to change your behavior. The point of this was to get you to even think about it for five minutes about what else could I do? Yeah. To, to get you to think about the fact that you don't have better options right now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It will maybe inspire some people to do that. And and what I think is so fascinating is mm-hmm. because of how innocuous, uh, what a tiny yeah. ask you're asking <laughs> and what a vitriolic in some times, in some times, in some spaces, what a vitriolic and mouth foaming response you get from people for asking them to put a sticker that has facts on it. You know, it's, it's amazing. <laughs> it is so innocuous. That's the beauty of the thing. So it's so <laughs> innocuous. It's just a sticker, right? Paradoxically, though, I think it's so compelling because it's it's a bit of a missing piece. It makes us feel more connected to this problem. That creates then greater social impetus to address it. I actually say there's this guy I debated from the Canadian Retail Association. I can't even remember. Mm. Uh, uh, he was basically saying, well, we can't have these stickers, right? And I think to myself, you know what? We've altered the chemistry, the basic chemistry of our planet. We've acidified our oceans. Let's now rank order all the possible interventions one can take to address this issue. So at the top, maybe we're shutting down the tar sands. Maybe we're stopping pipelines going down. Maybe we're rationing this product. Maybe we're... we're $1,000 a ton carbon tax. You know what I mean? <laughs> and, then, and then at the very, very bottom, 
is is let's just put a sticker <laughs> on a pump like literally underneath this is do nothing like yeah. if, you, if you're arguing against this idea you're arguing for unmitigated yeah. climate change. actually i'm gonna go ahead and make this an official green majority uh <laughs> request if you can think of a less intrusive yes. action than the one rob is proposing please send it to either yeah. us or Rob. Rob can be reached at our horizons website. You can find that on our website. This is, I'm, I'm just sort of joking, but I'm actually being completely serious. If you can yeah. actually think of please anything do. less intrusive than what Rob is suggesting, please let us know because, Hey, maybe he'll just back up to that if this doesn't work out. Yeah. Um, but really this is the, there's low, there's low hanging fruit. And then there's mm-hmm. the fruit that's already fallen off the tree. And I think this is, <laughs> this is yeah. in contact with ground <laughs> low fruit. Yeah. This is fruit. that has been stomped on. It's been there on the ground for a while. Like <laughs> let's do this people. We're and up we, against a big problem. <laughs> Made it into biodegradable stickers. You know, yeah. that's how low this fruit is. Uh, we're going to take a quick break. We're, we're getting near to the end of the show, so I want to just take our final music break. We'll come right back to this conversation in, in a minute. So we're, we're sitting in studio with, with Rob Shirky. I've got Kevin Farmer in the studio, as usual. Uh, uh, Stefan Hostetter's off, off in Germany. If you want to see some of his vacation photos, he's been posting photos of uh, green roofs in Hamburg. You can do that on the Instagram account for Green Majority, which can also be found on the website, uh, greenmajority.ca. We're going to be back in just one minute uh, here on CIUT 89.5. Great place to come back in. I'm, uh, we're, we're doing very short music breaks today because I'm just having way too much fun in the studio. And a big part of that is, is thanks to Rob Shirky, who's in the studio with us today. Uh, we have a, a couple of other things I wanted to announce. I threw over there that Stefan is away, but taking awesome photos of his trip around Europe of just cool environmental things that he's finding. He's already got a couple of pictures up from some uh, really lovely green roofs in Hamburg. So if you're interested in seeing any of those photos, and, and if you miss Stefan, as we the rest of us do, you can uh, take a look at our Instagram account. Uh, we also have uh, some preview uh, uh, images from the next episode of Climate Cartoons. Uh, Dave is uh, n- like 96% uh, complete most of the drawings uh, so that will be uh, done when he comes back. Unfortunately, Dave is, uh, is also on vacation but uh, I'm putting up some sample drawings <clears throat> which uh, now that we've had such an amazing response to the Climate Cartoons, the um, 
first episode is is nearing a thousand views as well uh, and we have a couple other trailers up as well uh he's uh he's getting more and more excited about doing the drawings so you, you're actually seeing a like exponential increase in the detail of the drawings so some of the ones that uh that he has sent me as previews for the next episode that's coming out are in- incredibly detailed it looks really really awesome so if you have haven't seen the climate cartoons if you haven't watched any of the videos those are also available on the website at greenmajority.ca uh but just in the final couple of minutes here we'll come back uh rob shirky's in the studio with us from our horizon and uh, of course kevin Farmer here as well um we were just talking about sort of the the funny reaction and and i guess the idea that that in this case with such a simple idea that uh the response of people having such a vitriolic response to it is almost proof that it's working is sort Mm -hmm. of what you were where you left off there yeah well it's funny i tend to think and it's going to take a variety of approaches to address this beast of a problem called climate change right but i tend to think right now the narrative largely is uh, we tend to look upstream. So climate change, it's a problem of, of oil sands, tar sands, uh, pipelines, um, you know, big, bad, evil industry, and so on. So we take that mirror, we reflect it upstream. And, and there's value to that. And you will get some wins from that approach. But I think part of that is we then further distance ourselves from this problem. So I have nothing to do with it. You have nothing to do with it. It's all those people way over there in Alberta, say. And I think we're actually kind of by distancing ourselves from that, we almost perpetuate the status quo because if downstream end users of the product are just entirely complacent, um, we might not be saying, give me oil, give me oil, but in effect, then there's demand for it. Mm. So if you can, instead of reflecting that mirror upstream, imagine turning it, reflecting it downstream, again, to create this sort of dissatisfaction among end users, I think that's actually where change comes from. I think there's tremendous value to discomfort. Uh, change doesn't come from complacency it comes from discomfort so that's what i'm trying uh, to achieve in again an absurdly low cost <laughs> simple intervention you know that, that humanity should be able to do yeah so in the, in the final couple of minutes here there's there will sort of i want to come back to something because there was a, a recent report which uh, we uh, sent out through facebook and twitter and I, i've been favoriting as well a few other people commenting on the same article because i think it's really important and it's important both for the context of what you're talking about and it's also important within the context of the uh, the first interview with uh, professor bedford um was that you know one of the common things w- what's the let's see if you can guess it actually what what is the one of the most common uh conspiracy theories about climate change uh it's a socialist conspiracy for everyone to take my money and my guns oh damn okay well the next most common one is al gore right oh of course it's all the entire thing is created by al gore right why because well he's trying to he's trying to he owns a bunch of uh solar stock and he's trying to Uh, enrich himself right so you know the the insanity of the the number of things in that that's insane is not worth going into but here's an interesting number. We subsidize the fossil fuel industry, according to a recent IMF analysis, to the tune of $5.3 trillion a year or $10 million a minute. That is not even oil company profits. That is the subsidy that the oil companies get from us. Now, that's global. That's not in Canada. Um but like one minute's worth of subsidy to the fossil fuel industry would fund uh, a thousand organization like uh, like our horizon from here until the end of time, basically. Yeah. And this is the amount to which we're doing it. And so this is and, and what, it, what the reason I'm I'm really interested in subsidies was this is money for this product that we're paying that we don't notice. Mm-hmm. And so when people say, well, oil is cheap. No, it's not. When people say, uh, you know, well, this is the easiest thing and look and blah, 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 all these things. Well, they have no idea about what's actually going going on behind the scenes, which is actually part of the idea of a subsidy. Mm-hmm. It's artificially deflating prices. But we pay through it through 
through our taxes. Mm-hmm. So when when I hear, of course, recently there was uh, some other uh, stuff here saying, well, if conservatives win, they're going to promise to lower taxes even further. Great. Let's kill all fossil fuel subsidies. There's no reason for it. Now, uh, we maybe we couldn't kill them all at once because I understand market forces and blah, blah, blah. But we need a plan to phase them out. There is no reason why we should be subsidizing an industry that we don't want. Yeah. Or no. at least the science people, you know, who were thinking based on the science don't want. Uh, I saw a flicker in your eye uh, while I was speaking, Kevin. Did I get something wrong or did you have a comment you wanted to throw in? <laughs> mm, I think I've changed my mind. Okay. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I haven't had a chance to go through that study yet. I don't disagree with anything you just said. In fact, I thought every comment you just made was spot on. The last time I went through an IMF study about subsidies to fossil fuels, it was here in Canada, and they pegged they pegged the tally for indirect subsidies to fossil fuels at around thirty six or thirty four billion dollars, but they were including direct and indirect subsidies. And in we talked to Matthew Kelway, who's the MP, who's an NDP MP uh, for a Toronto riding. And, uh, and, and he, he, he said that, you know, they've determined that the direct subsidies in Canada to fossil fuels are about $1.3 billion, which entirely conforms to everything I've ever read. The IMF report that I'm, I'm referencing arrived at, you know, tens of billions of dollars in extra subsidies by considering indirect subsidies. And that's kind of a rabbit hole that mm. you can go down to you know, a pretty, pretty far degree. Like by the time he's at, by the time that report is adding in things like traffic congestion and, you know, you're like, okay, right. So it doesn't contradict what you just said. We are as a society paying for these things without a doubt. We're paying in many, many ways, but to phrase this entirely in terms of these like jaw dropping headline grabbing numbers in terms of subsidies, if you're like I said, I haven't gone through this one yet. It's been on my list to do list. But when you see this jaw-dropping, headline-grabbing number of subsidies, there's no way those are direct subsidies. So they're talking about indirect subsidies again. And like I said, that's a rabbit hole you can go down for a really, really long time. And I don't know that that, that helps. I don't know that that really advances the dialogue. It, it just opens a, it opens you up to a broadside of criticism, some of which I think is quite legitimate in those terms, mm-hmm. even though, yes, it's still fair to say, yeah, well, traffic congestion is a cost to society. It's just who do you actually assign the blame for that price tag, you know, that particular price tag. So anyway, that's my that was me changing my mind and not making a comment. That that, <laughs> that was your inner nerd going it it isn't that straightforward and Look, simple. And you're, and you're right, it's absolutely not that straightforward and, and simple. And I think that's just I think that's just a product of uh, of the sort of, you know, tweet length information mm-hmm. society yeah, that we live I, in. I live in the real world and I I I live in the real world that where the laws of thermodynamics apply. I'm not I'm not on the show, you know, pumping some, you know, I environmental ideology. I've arrived at my environmental ideology because I live in the real world where things like the laws of thermodynamics apply. So, you know, I, I, I don't think we need anything but reality to make the case for sanity on the environment. Mm. Mm. Well, we've got about, uh, oh, about five minutes left. So maybe, uh, Rob, do you want to uh, maybe take a last crack at, uh, at that idea? Do you, does, does any part of your plan deal with uh, talking about subsidies specifically? Is that because I know a lot of the, the information actually, that's a good point. We haven't mm-hmm. actually talked too much about the, what's on the actual labels. Mm-hmm. Um, so is any of that subsidy issue addressed on the labels? Are you planning to? And regardless, uh, do you want to just talk a bit about what's actually on the labels? Yeah, well, what's interesting, so I, I caught that headline as well. And, and like Kevin, I haven't had a chance to sort of dive into it and see what all 
is included in that number. But if, say, for example, if it doesn't include uh, the external cost externalities or the hidden costs of fossil fuel use, uh, like we burn the product that causes warming, causes a melt in glaciers, rise in sea level, now we collectively have to share in, in the cost of upgrading our coastal infrastructure, right? I saw one tweet come out from the uh, White House uh, saying that by the end of this century, we might see at the low end uh, a sea, le- sea level increase of one foot at the high end, four feet. And if it's at the low end of one foot, uh, you're looking at a cost to the United States of $200 billion, right? So uh, to the extent that, that there are these externalities, these hidden costs of, of our use of fossil fuels, what I'm trying to do is instead of asking that question, okay, how do we cost that? How do we then perhaps reflect it in the price of the product by way of a, a cap-and-trade regime or a carbon tax, I ask the broader question, how else can you communicate these externalities to a marketplace? And, and what you know those pricing mechanisms do, using this quantitative approach, sort of this, this language of dollars and cents, I'm trying to achieve using this qualitative approach, so just through the use of image and text. And so it's, it's not the narrow how do we price it, it's the broader how do we communicate it to a marketplace. And what I think is interesting about it is... While we do need to price carbon, for sure, um, I think this has the potential to engage our sense of humanity in a way that perhaps a $0.05, cent, $0.10 cent increase at the pump doesn't. And even if you know one is of the view that, that that approach ultimately you know hitting us in the wallet is the critical way to go, the very reality is when these uh, labels, somewhat analogous labels anyway, came out on tobacco packages, it was in the early to mid-60s in the United States, they were the first country to come out with the text-only labels. Um, Two or three years later, taxes on tobacco products shot up. Why? Because this thing was was labeled literally, figuratively as well, as harmful. It then creates this space for those sorts of interventions. So I do think it's critical that we we label this product as having these harms. Uh, and then from there, you could go perhaps, okay, well, how do we, what do we do with pricing mechanisms? Where do we go from here? Uh, so that's the intention. And if people want to take this up, it's really easy. They could go to our website at ourhorizon.org and you can actually just pitch it to your counselors and we're hoping that it sort of gets more traction in communities across North America. All right. And so the the website so people can find it is? Uh, www.ourhorizon.org. All right. So we've been, uh, we're at the end of the program. Unfortunately, we are out of time. I want to thank uh, Rob Shirky from Our Horizon very much for taking some time to join us today as well. Earlier in the program, in case you missed it, we were speaking to Professor Dan Bedford from the uh, Faculty of Social and Behavioral Sciences on Weber State University talking about inoculating people against climate denial as well. Uh, check out the website if you missed that, greenmajority.ca. I'd like to thank very much uh, our guests today, our listeners here in Toronto at CIUT, as well as our wonderful, <clears throat> excuse me, our wonderful radio syndicate partners all across the country and our online listeners. You can learn more about how to connect with the show in a variety of ways at greenmajority.ca. But that is basically it. All the time we have for this week. We've got another couple of great guests coming up uh, next week. But uh, for now, folks, have a good green week and we'll see you all real soon.